The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Well, last week we heard about the one who is coming to make the path straight for the Messiah. And this morning we hear directly from this wild prophet, John the Baptist. James Carroll, in his book, Christ Actually, calls John the most charismatic Jew of his age. We tend not to uh, think of John in those terms. I think mostly we see him as this uh, wild man who goes off in the desert wearing a uh, hair shirt, eating locusts. How could anybody see him as charismatic? Uh, John's community, it seems, must have been fairly significant because even the uh, Jewish historian Josephus references John, especially with regard to the demise of Herod Antipas. Herod, you recall, is the one that had John beheaded because John uh, called him on this uh, adulterous relationship he was having with Herodias, his brother-in-law's wife, or his rather his half-brother's wife. So uh, this community of John must have been fairly significant. People clearly knew about John even to the point where a historian would reference him. It's possible, too, that John's community uh, may have had some connection or at least some association in some way with the community of Qumran. Now, you recall that that's the community that 
uh, found themselves uh, locating in the, in the caves near the Dead Sea. They were ascetics. And uh, later, in 1947, some of their writings were discovered. And as those writings were pieced together, it became clear from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the book of Daniel was very important in the life of that community. Now, Daniel's book contains a, a great amount of, uh, of apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, in Greek, means revelation. So these writings were thought to be revealing end times, and uh, more specifically, revealing the time when God would once again intervene on behalf of Israel. Well, it's still a bit hard, I think, for us to fully understand, probably impossible for 21st century Christians to understand how John was uh, perceived and, and what people thought of him in the first century. But I think it's also important for us to know what the circumstances were under which the people were living at the time. They were living under the oppression of Rome. And Rome had developed a system in, the, in their colonies uh, to make it uh, possible for them to collect taxes, to control commerce. All of life was under the control of Rome, except that bit that was given to those who were in charge of the temple. And it was an oppressive uh, occupation. Uh, most people lived in poverty or near poverty. There were a few who were able to figure out how to be connected into the system in such a way to have a better life. But for most, it was just simply a heavy burden. James Carroll writes, it was to such a demoralized population that John's message of personal change by means of religious awakening rang with power. Your repentance will bring about the intervention of God. I think it's important for us to see that at this time, people were expecting God to intervene. And in some way that I don't understand, there was a sense that if they repented, if they came out to John and repented, that they would in some way be bringing about this uh, return of God in intervening in the life of Israel and perhaps overthrowing Rome. Now, we don't see it quite the way that they saw it at that time. We recognize the first coming as being the, what we observe at Christmas, uh, the incarnation. And that incarnation, in a sense, was God revealing God's self in the most perfect revelation possible in the life of Jesus. They thought that there would also be judgment at the same time that the Messiah came. And they clearly thought that John might possibly have been the Messiah. That's why it says in that scripture that they were very expectant and they wondered, could it possibly be John? Our understanding is there's that first coming and then there will be another coming, a second coming, when there will be judgment. So we have that separation in terms of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Well, with that as a backdrop, it's perhaps a bit easier for us to understand John's preaching, calling for repentance, calling people to come out to be baptized, to be ritually washed as a sign of their repentance. James Carroll has really helped me, I think, understand why so many people would come out and come to John, this uh, preacher who was calling them a brood of vipers and probably yelling at them. Yet they came out to him. And I think it's believing that if they did, and if they repented, perhaps, just perhaps, they would be helping to bring about 
the judgment and the intervention of God. Well, John begins his sermon by encouraging those who came to bear fruits of repentance. And he warned them that just because of their heritage, just because they were daughters and sons of uh, Abraham, didn't mean that they were right with God. But rather they had to repent. They had to take responsibility for the way they led their daily lives. It had to do with an ethic, a way of living. And this is very consistent with the, uh, with the apocalyptic form. Uh, he, he cautioned them that they needed to repent before the judgment because John was preaching that the judgment was going to come and the Messiah would separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff would burn in eternally. Well, then the people, hearing this, this uh, dramatic call to repentance, they start to ask, what do we do? And he responds to three different groups of people. First, the crowds. The crowds ask, what should we do? And Jesus, or rather, John essentially says, think about how you use your resources. If you have food, if you have a second cloak, give it to the one who does not. Now, that's a message for us today, without doubt. You know, this, uh, this difference between the poor and the truly super rich has just grown to be a huge chasm. And we know that many of us have resources that we could share, especially at this time of year, we tend to think about it. I also remember, though, that uh, the town that I served in, uh, in South Dakota, every year there was a, a wonderful banquet that was put on, a, a turkey dinner feast. And the uh, town mothers and fathers would gather and would serve that food. And then we would forget about the poor the rest of the year. This is about something we must think about every day, because the poor are poor every day. And I know there are many in this congregation who give very generously, sharing their resources with those who have so little. And it becomes especially evident this time of year. I think that uh, the church has been approached three times in the last week uh, for assistance for those who really are in need. Most recently, a mother with twins who has lost her job. Uh, Christmas is coming. She doesn't have a car. She borrows the car of a relative. When we encounter these depths of need, we realize how privileged we are and how much responsibility we bear in sharing our resources with those who have so little. That, I think, was what John's message was to the crowd. Think about how you use your resources. And then... Uh, Luke writes something that I think is very telling. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's how poorly tax collectors were thought of. Even tax collectors came out to repent. And they asked, what should we do? And he simply says, you know, do your job. Don't expect more from these people than they are assessed in their taxes. Just be a good public servant. And then the soldiers ask, what should we do? And he urges them not to extort money by threat or by false accusation. Again, do your job and be satisfied with your wages. That might have been a little difficult for them because the wages were not very much. And that was probably what was contributing to this uh, kind of uh, graph that was going on in order to be able to make a living. So it probably was very hard for them to hear this. But in all of this, 
John is saying, think about how you lead your life on a daily basis. That is what this repentance is about. I believe, along with uh, James Carroll, that the people came out to John believing that they were a part of something that was larger than themselves, greater than themselves, something that they were a part of that could possibly bring about God's intervention on their behalf to relieve them of the situation they found themselves in. Well, however John's message may have been understood in the first century, I think for us he brings truly good news. Even though John himself was an ascetic, he didn't suggest that in order to be in a right relationship with God, you needed to be an ascetic, you know, go off by yourself and pray all day. That's not what he was suggesting. Nor did he suggest any kind of heroic uh, effort to show God how good you are. I think sometimes we believe that only a person like Mother Teresa can really truly be loved by God. That's just wrong. God loves each one of us for who we are in the situation we find ourselves in. And our response to that love and to the grace of God is to live our lives in an ethical way, to live our lives day in and day out, conscious of how much God has given us in terms of God's love and of resources. I believe that uh, living the Christian life is a matter of dealing with all the day-to-day challenges that cross our path. Uh, It's the way that we interact uh, one with another in our families, I could give you a couple of recent examples where I haven't done that very well. But I won't, because Lou's here. (laughs) But it affects all of us. It's how we live our lives on a daily basis that reflects our life as a Christian. It's the way that we respond to that person who cuts us off in traffic. It's the way that we respond to someone who gets ahead of us in line or who forces their way ahead of us when we're just trying to get someplace. It's the way that we interact with those people that we share an office with or with the person who is a part, an important part of our life, but sometimes just rub us the wrong way day in and day out. It's how we live together as students and teachers how we care for one another as human beings. That is the way we live the Christian life, is by thinking about how should I live this day, this moment, as a Christian. John was telling the people that holiness was not some abstract or ethereal or mysterious thing. It is as common as the moment we live right now. It's as common as our everyday mundane life. Now, I think it's also important for us to understand that uh, John's baptism is not the same as the baptism offered by the church. John's baptism was to serve as a sign that a person had changed their life, had made a decision to go a different direction, had repented of the way they had been living. So they had this ritual bathing. But the baptism of the church, on the other hand, is a sign of God's grace. And it is incorporating that person into the body of Christ. But what I find interesting is that embedded in our service of baptism is John's baptism. Listen to these words. During the examination at the beginning of the service, we are asked, 
Uh, do we renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do we renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do we renounce all sinful desires that draw, draw us from the love of God? Do we turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as our Savior? Do we put our whole trust in his grace and love? In other words, do we repent? Do we turn from ways that are not good? Do we turn from those ways that separate us from one another or from the love of God? One minister says that when he baptizes a child, he says to that child, Little child, you belong to God. You always have and you always will. And now the mark of Christ is a part of you. Remember, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. But the question is, does our life reflect that of one whose life is marked by Christ? That, I think, is what we're called to ask ourselves this day. As we approach the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, God present with us in a way that is, that is material, that is a human being like you and me, as we approach that celebration of that birth, let us ask ourselves, does my life reflect Christ? My prayer is that each of us will be able to say, yes, with God's help. Amen. Amen.